0: Welcome to the Living in Alignment podcast. My name is Amy Landry. Through a collage of conversations, here we distill mindful living and timeless wisdom within a modern, everyday context. Thank you for being here. An Indian yoga practitioner in the Shankaracharya tradition, Susanna Bakataki is the founder of Ignite Yoga and Wellness Institute, and runs Ignite, Be Well 200 and 500-hour yoga training programs. She's a certified yoga therapist and author of the forthcoming book, Honour Yoga's Roots, Courageous Ways to Deepen Your Yoga Practice. With an honors degree in philosophy from UC Berkeley and a master's of education from Cambridge College, Susanna is a diversity, accessibility, inclusivity and equity yoga unity educator who created the groundbreaking Honour Don't Appropriate Yoga Summit with more than 10,000 participants. And I'm absolutely thrilled, thrilled to have Susanna on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you so much for your time.
1: I'm so happy to be here.
0: So I would love to lay some context and framework for all the people listening out there, particularly if they don't know your work. Would you mind sharing with us your story? I think that you're an incredible advocate for your message. Uh, yeah, how did you come to be here and really be putting this work out into the world?
1: You know, it's so funny because, like so many of us, I think it was almost accidental, right? It's the way the path that led me to doing what I do, but being uh, mixed and British. So, my dad is Indian, my mom is British, and I grew up, I was born in England, but we had to move to the US because of kind of getting away from discrimination and violence against mixed race families, my whole life was sort of set against this context of separation. And we were looking for belonging and for a place where we would feel included. But even in the United States, I still felt like I didn't belong and I still felt not welcome because of, you know, just the way that we were treated and me and my brother were treated. And so, um, So, for so much of my life, I actually felt like an outsider and like a misfit and like I didn't belong. And only through the practices of yoga was I able to come back to a feeling of belonging to myself and a sense of unity, like real, true inner unity. And when I experienced that, I knew I also had to share it with other people and also give and express and share a taste of what yoga can be, not just kind of the superficial understanding of what yoga is, but like the depth of the practice that is all about ethics and values and, you know, true liberation, even from those things that make us feel separated from ourselves or from one another. So that's kind of the short version. Um, There are a lot of struggles and pitfalls and toils and you know like different things um, particular to like learning to become a teacher a teacher uh, first of English and history and then later of yoga along the way but really for me this my journey has been about separation and then moving from separation to unity. Mm.
0: Your book which uh, as you know, I've been fortunate enough to read an advanced copy and it's exceptional and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But I am incredibly appreciative of this work because as someone who's traveled a lot in India and, you know, not only most in yoga but Ayurveda and Odissi dance and I have this real deep appreciation for Indian arts and a fear that it's in some respects not only being diluted but being lost in many ways. Um, You know in your book there's a a couple of questions that you propose to the reader and I love this because there's so many prompts in your book that it's not just the information we're reading but then we're prompted to really consider it in terms of our own circumstances. Um, But, you know, you do question the reader and say, well, what is authentic liberating yoga? How do we understand what authentic yoga is when so much of it has come to us through a colonial lens? Uh, And I think that's a really, really great consideration. So uh, one key element of your work is that distinction between cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation. So, would you mind for the listener just unpacking those terms so that we can have a real tangible understanding and relate it to you know our own particular circumstances
1: absolutely yes um and then and you know i love that you brought it from the perspective of colonization right to cultural ap- appropriation because really cultural appropriation often people are like oh it's just about fashion or hairstyles or clothing you know but It's a doorway to deeper and bigger issues like racism, like exploitation, like colonization. And it's kind of the canary in the coal mine that lets us know, oh, there's something out of step or something that that needs to be explored more here when people are concerned about cultural appropriation. So by definition, cultural appropriation is when someone from a dominant culture takes the values, the practices, the clothing, the, you know, um, any kind of aspects of a less dominant, right. Or, or target culture and uses those, um, those assets without regard for the culture they're taking it from. And it always involves two criteria. And I think I write about this in the book, Um, I write about it pretty much everywhere, because I think it's so important that we, because then we can all identify Right? you don't have to rely on an outside expert, you know, quote, unquote, expert for (laughs) people who can't see because we're having a conversation. But really, it's more about being that inner expert of well, how do I relate to cultures? other than my own in a way that's respectful and that doesn't cause harm. Well, we can look for two criteria for, for meeting what has to be there to be appropriating. And one is a power differential. So a difference in power, and then two is harm. And I'll break those both down a little bit. So people can actually apply them to their own lives. So in terms of the power differential, if, someone is from a dominant culture, like in the United States, where I live, the dominant culture, when you look around, you know, who are the people in power? What do they look like? What, you know, background are they from? In general, our power structure still here is white and male, cisgendered, right, upper middle class, educated. And so and then if you look around the yoga world in the West, many of those things would be true, but you could substitute white female for, you know, um, cisgender, you know, thin, but these are all kind of normative cultures. So the culture that is privileged uh, doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with folks who are from that, that background. It's just, that's what's the norm. And so anyone who falls outside of that is not the, the norm or isn't in a position of power. And so in the case of cultural appropriation, we would take like normative Western white culture and then say with yoga, well, where does yoga come from? From South Asia, from India. And so Indian culture, like say for example, the deities like Lakshmi or Ganesh, Lakshmi the goddess of um, abundance and, and generosity and Ganesh the deity of um, removing and also placing needed obstacles, right? So uh, clarity and, and moving in the right direction. if a jeweler were to take those deities a jeweler from the dominant culture were to go and see oh they're so beautiful they have such rich meaning i'm going to take that cultural element and i'm going to design jewelry based on that and then sell it you've got a power differential right that's a clear power difference two well is there harm is there harm to the source culture and Harm is complicated. Generally, there's kind of harm of, of two kinds, I would say one is disrespect, which I'll talk about in a moment. And where someone from the source culture, it feels like, oh, that's painful. Like when we see a Ganesh or a Lakshmi on a toilet seat, or, you know, on underwear, and it's like, wait, do you not understand that the like, this is like family to some of us. These are like you wouldn't put a picture of like your parent on the, on the toilet seat. Like that's so disrespectful that that's just not okay. You know? And, um, so that's harmful, but it's not necessarily materially harmful, meaning it doesn't like cause suffering materially. Um, but if there there's like designs created or, or, um, say that, Western jewelry creator has gone to India and, uh, and sees a design by a local artisan, copies it, takes it, and then profits from it without giving any, you know, any reparations or any money back to the source from which it came, then that's actually causing material harm because that, that artisan is not benefiting from mm. the, the transactions that that manufacturer is making. And in a way, that's happening on a global scale, right? Even if it's not an individual person that he or she is taken from, really, you would say that Indian culture as a whole is being taken from without any regard for for giving back to that source culture.
0: So there's almost <laughs> what I'm picking up from you, and this has definitely been my understanding of what you're speaking to comes through having read your book. So I just want to emphasize that importance. But there's elements of obviously exploitation, you know, Mm. even if it's, you know, through ignorance. Uh, But Mm. um, but there's also that sense of sterilization which you speak to in your book and that white centering. So it's like that dominant culture going to another culture totally watering something down, taking an aspect of it, not really understanding it, commercializing it, making money off it and, you know, and that's it. And I mean, there's so many elements as I've come to learn and I'm still trying to unravel it from your book that, you know, really make up uh, that element of appropriation. But I think when we can look to social media, it can be quite clear in, in a sense and, you know, media in general in terms of yoga. So in contrast to that, and this is another thing that I love about your book because it's like okay now that I know this now that I know you know and it's like you can be innocently ignorant for so long but if you're listening for example to this podcast episode you're no longer innocent it's when we know better we have to do better right so right. we need to now look to okay well what can we do with this, this information uh and so you're explanations i don't know if you want to speak to what cultural appreciation is and how that is uh, mm-hmm. comes from more integrity and humility but how we can how how can we do better once we understand cultural appropriate appropriation
1: well i love what you say like once you're aware you can do better but the beauty too is it's like actually cultural appropriation doesn't help anyone <laughs> because it is in a way it's being lazy Right. It's not being as creative or as critical or turning back into our own roots or our own, you know, it's just like think, oh, I'm going to take that thing from over there um, and not be in relationship. Right. With the people from which it came. So um, and often I, I just want to give one more example of cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. because I think it makes it so starkly clear is. Sikh culture, in Sikh culture, S I K H, um, for people who who don't know, you might have heard it as Sikh, um, but it's Sikh. Men wear turbans, and those turbans are actually a sign of their faith and an indication of, I will stand up, I will serve, I will be of assistance to anyone who needs help. But often, at least in the United States, I don't know about where you are, many, unfortunately, many men are targeted and discriminated against based on the mistaken identity that they're mistaken for Muslim and um and another South Asian, you know, an Asian identity, and then um an African identity, and then harmed based on this mistake of of culture um and of white supremacy, right? Fear of of those different than the norm. And so when a company like Gucci, which is a, a Western fashion company took the sick turban and turned it into a fashion statement and put it on white models and, uh, sold it for $2,000. That's a clear example, right? It's like, oh, so cringeworthy. Because <laughs> it's, it's like, no, you know, you can't just take one, something that's not, it's not just fashion for a Sikh man. It's part of, you know, a sick person that was part of their faith. And two, uh, don't just like take the glamour of the culture if you're not going to be willing to stand with the suffering of what we have to go through, you know, for being called dot heads or being called terrorists or being told to go home, something I and most of my South Asian siblings uh, deal with and have dealt with for much of our lives. And so there you can start to see, well, oh, that's why people are mad about cultural appropriation, because it actually points to a bigger systemic problem and that problem is the erasure or even the attack of the people um, that you're essentially sampling or taking culture from so so i just wanted to share that cuz because i think sometimes something like jewelry or food you know people are like oh isn't it just globalization what can i not eat you know lasagna anymore because it's from italy and am i appropriating and the answer is well no right because One power imbalance, you know, not so much. But two harm, no, right? If I go to a Thai restaurant, I'm not Thai, and I pay for a wonderful Thai meal. um, There's no harm, you know. So that's clearly not appropriation. So globalization is different than exploitation. Exploitation is certainly part of globalization, but it doesn't have to be so. um, We don't always have to be exploiting as we're globalizing. And so I, I would love to share, actually, will have the antidote to cultural appropriation, which is power and harm, is actually in the practice of yoga. And that is power balancing. So working with Shakti, you know, working with power, our own and others to balance. And then two Ahimsa, the first yogic yama, the first um, ethical precept of yoga. So but very specifically, so power balance or power balancing, Means to look at in every situation, you know, where am I in relationship to the people or, or groups that I'm interacting with, right? Where do I fall in terms of like kind of a wheel of power and positionality? And this is a little more complex than we can probably fully unpack in a podcast. Um, it's something that I definitely encourage people to continue learning about and to explore around social location because it's lifelong work. So in any conversation that I'm in, I'm thinking about, well, you know, I may have educational privilege. Um, Oh, but they're male and I'm female, right? So there's a difference of power there. Um, Oh, but I have this and they have that, you know? And so how can I either just be mindful of power or, or privilege or disprivilege in this interaction? And when I'm aware of my power and privilege, use it to uplift. So for me, for example, as um, someone who's in the West, <clears> someone who's mixed, so I'm lighter skinned, you can't tell cause I'm, a, I'm, I'm on audio, but I'm brown. I'm clearly a brown person, but I'm a lighter skinned brown person. And so I have light skin privilege. And so, um, and I'm sweet, right? Like I'm a sweet person. And so in many ways I get invited in to um, to have these conversations where a darker skinned or more you know maybe more like forceful kind of kind of powerful direct person may not be and so I as using my privilege I'm always going to be like hey great yes I'll do this festival or yes I'll do this thing if I'm invited but invite these five people too, right? Like invite some Black folks and invite invite some other South Asian folks. Invite some folks from different caste backgrounds. Like, this is not about just bringing in one person and, and tokenizing them and making and being done and taking off your boxes, right? So, so power is complex because sometimes people are like, well, I I feel like I shouldn't see all those things. Why are you asking me to see the things that make us different? But actually. Those things are at play all the time. And by acknowledging them and trying to adjust for them in a thoughtful way, then we actually go towards balancing, balancing power where we can. So balancing power and then trying to do as little harm as possible, right? So um, so adjusting for, again, that privilege, um, so we're not exploiting. So in the case of that jewelry maker, let's take them for example, they could one co brand, right, or co design with the Indian designer, that would be reducing harm Two, if they don't do that, that they choose to do their own production, they could give money back to Mm. uh, folks in India. Um, Three, maybe they could get Indian other, you know, Indian models or people to represent their work, right. So there's just always ways to, um, to try to lessen the harm that is being done. So just like cultural appropriation is power and harm, appreciation is power balancing and harm reduction. Mm.
0: So in some ways, just to, I guess, uh, clarify that I'm on the right track. I mean, I understand what you're saying. So, but essentially we're utilizing our privilege and our power to essentially do the right thing with it, to create integrity and respect. So we acknowledge that we have the privilege and we have the power. So what are we doing with that? rather than being you know ignorant or but you know and this is the thing when i when i was reading your book too i was like oh but it's such a fine dance between um you know appropriating and allowing ourselves to be ignorant and then dropping into something like virtue signaling and going from one end of the spectrum to the other where we're it's not coming from a place of sincerity and we're just trying to okay let's go and get a a bunch of teachers that are of color so we look like we're doing the right thing you know and it's like it's a really delicate, I guess dance and I guess it just reflects that there needs to be this deep uh sense of um yeah, I just in sincerity, integrity where it's not for show, it's like a true right. desire to actually make a difference whether people see it or not. Would that be correct? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah.
1: I mean, it's a lifelong practice, just like yoga is, right? It's it's not something that we're done with or we we finish and It's also something where once we engage in this kind of work, it's like, first of all, you know, sometimes we can really be overcome with actually how frustrated we are that the we learned or even the yoga we've taught is so watered down. And so Mm -hmm. spending a little bit of time grieving that and just like, it's okay to just be like, what? How did I miss out on all of what yoga has to offer? Why? Why was it not taught to me fully? Um, So to take some time to one grieve, and then two, like, learn, right, sign up, learn all all of the issues, and it almost feels like you're kind of going deeper and deeper and deeper, like, Oh, I didn't realize that and I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. And it can feel a little bit discouraging. So I think having community really helps or people to talk to or, you know, converse with and support. And then also not trying to be perfect with it. Actually, perfectionism is a quality of white supremacy. You know, it's it's a way that we unless we can do it perfectly, we make ourselves wrong. And then if we're going to be wrong, well, why bother at all, right? So that's not so helpful. What's actually helpful is to say, Hey, and I do this often, when I teach is like, I'm here, and I'm going to try to do my best. And I may cause harm, you know, and and I acknowledge that both harm and healing, as one of my colleagues, Jasmine Hines says, harm and healing happen in the same space. And so that, I'm not going to be perfect. It's not all going to be, you know, rosy and beautiful. And, and actually, if we think that a yoga practice leads to a life with where there is no suffering or there is no challenge, there's no challenge, you know, maybe, um, maybe it's a different kind of practice, you know, but, but there, there's space for that. There's space mm-hmm. for the, the mess ups, there's space for realizing, oh, i am um, tokenized. Thing, or, you know, people are mad at me and they think I'm being tokenizing, but really I know that I'm in this for the long haul. And yeah. so I'm going to be more like the ocean and the wave is going to come and go, you know, and like the the brown watching or the black, you know, profile pictures or whatever, like that is going to come and go. And yes, I will relate to that in the way that is in the most integrity, but I am in this for the long haul. And I'm actually about equity and you know, I may get understood and I may get misunderstood sometimes, but I'm still going to be committed to these values. And and just the way we come back to our practice and like, what is the heart of my practice? What are my values and how can I come back and move from there?
0: Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I was drawn to initially in finding your work uh, was, you know, and it's it's quite simple, but yet so important because it's kind of Uh, everywhere and that is is the use of the word namaste and Mm. I loved in your book how you even you said you're humble enough to say I even sometimes fall into saying namaste after class even though and probably for many people listening they're thinking well what what do you mean what's wrong with that but you know if you traveled a lot to India of course for the listener, you know, you'll know that it's generally a greeting, which you obviously mention on your website and your blog, um, and also in the book. But we fall into those habits, that conditioning often of closing the class, and that was something after a lot of travel in India. It didn't feel right anymore. But I can mm-hmm. look back and not feel bad about it. But now that I understand, and even even still now, I occasionally fall into that just habitual kind of rounding out of the class and close with namaste, but I'm kind of okay with that because it's not perfect, but I'm conscious of it. And it's the slow unraveling of what is more appropriate and at least what, why, why am I saying this? You know, what does it mean? Why am I saying it? Why am I choosing to say it now? And I love that you said that, you know, that's something that you're experiencing as well, that, you know, um, we can't, like you said, we can't be perfect. We can't be perfect. Um, And... There's a there's a a, a, I'd love to read just something brief from your book as well. And you you say there is a difference between being skillful and attuned to the community one is connecting with and intentionally removing elements from the practice to make it more palatable to a normative audience. And I think that that's such a great clarification. I don't know if you want to unpack or elaborate on that a little bit but you know as yoga teachers in the west i think if we are consciously doing this work we can feel a little overwhelmed or unsure about how to move forward but even one of the examples that you raise a lot both in your book and on your website is the use of sanskrit Mm. yes i'd be happy to
1: talk about that you know as someone who's interested in preservation of of culture right and a practice like fundamentally i'm here as an educator and Uh, a a yoga culture advocate, I mean, here in this world, as those things. Mm -hmm. And when we think about like, what do communities do when they want to preserve culture? Well, they go to the language, they go to the customs, they go to the songs, they go to the chants. And those are the things they teach their children and they teach their children's children and they want to be preserved. And so when we're talking about yoga, you know, it comes to us through, uh, language and that language is primarily Sanskrit comes to us through a tradition and that cult, that tradition is primarily vedic tradition you know mm. and, and tantric as well and, um but there there are ways that we can help to preserve even in if just in our own knowledge you know we don't even like i'm not saying everyone has to teach a certain way i would never say that <laughs> i think my goal Really, also, is to get people to think critically about these things and then decide for yourself from a more informed place what you will do and not do. you know, and and that may change as well based on the situation. So I, I can never give anyone like a rule book. but what I can say is, I think for me, my practice of yoga deepened when I studied with my teacher Shankarji in Bihar, and I sat with him, while well, he chanted shlokas from the Bhagavad Gita. And then we would spend like three or four hours just on one sutra, one line, and unpacking that line and thinking about what it meant and all the different interpretations of the words and, and their philosophical and life applicable meanings, right? So so there's so much in the texts and so much in the language that if we're not learning it, we kind of deprive ourselves of that depth. Mm-hmm. So that's one It's like, I will be a lifelong student. You know, I'm a student of Sanskrit. I am not a Sanskrit expert by any means. Um, I'm definitely a student. My pronunciation isn't perfect, it's not even great, um, but I try. And I think that's part of what's important. You know, I didn't grow up, even though my father can read Sanskrit, it's not a, a spoken language, you know, and um, my family speaks. Uh, Assamese and Bengali, which are very different than Hindi. And, um, um, and so there's just, I I guess I I just want to say like, no one should feel bad for trying. I think it's important to learn and to try and, um, and to learn the language from which this practice has come, you know, as much as possible, even if that means you're like, okay, I know about the yogic values, you know, the yamas, for example, like ahimsa. And maybe you practice with it and you practice saying it to yourself and then you doing it as much as possible. Um, That's something I do every week. I practice with a different yama. So like ahimsa, non-harm, satya, truthfulness, asteya, non-stealing, or generosity. And, And I'll take that theme and I'll work with it through my week. And when I was early on in teaching, uh, I would take that theme and work it through my teaching. And so I wouldn't necessarily use a lot of Sanskrit in my classes, but I would weave in like a particular um, value and then maybe talk about how I was working with it in my own life and invite people in to learn. And it's the same with yoga asana. You know, Um, I've taught all ages, mostly In fact, my early days of teaching, because I didn't actually study yoga to become a teacher. I studied because I loved it and to deepen my practice, probably like many other people. And yet I was a teacher. I was a high school teacher and then later an elementary school teacher. And I have a child, a seven-year-old. And so I've taught children's yoga a lot. But I weave in the philosophy. And I even bring in the Sanskrit. I just do it in a scaffolded way. So I might bring in a book and do a lot of shapes, you know, asana shapes connected to the story. But maybe the book has a theme, like a lot of children's books do about kindness. And then I'll say maybe at the beginning or the end, you know, there's a yogic principle connected to the ahimsa. Okay, everyone say ahimsa, ah, not ahimsa harm, right? And so they learn. And if And I've taught that even with two-year-olds, two and three-year-olds. And even those young minds can, they understand that. So much so that later on, you know, I went back like just in this one class that I was teaching before COVID, before we have all been in in isolation. But when I was teaching in person, um, I've introduced that concept of the school year. And then somewhere halfway through the year, there was a boy who bit another boy like just for no reason like just went up and didn't have that self-control and bit his friend right and the friend who got bitten I was there you know just helping on the yard before my next yoga class with the other class other kids and I went up to him I was like are you okay you know and uh, and I had a relationship with this child so it's like why didn't you I don't understand why you didn't hit him back um, or push him, or like, why you just let him? Essentially, let him bite you. And he said, "Miss, it's the power of Ahimsa." It's like so what? Yeah,
0: they're like sponges, so kids, aren't they, kids? Yeah. Mm.
1: yeah. And so we can build in little bits, you know. And and that I think is like we don't have to go back to that quote that you had pulled all the way to like we have in the U.S. Something called Noga, meaning like no. Sanskrit yoga. Oh, Uh, yeah. Or no om yoga. We have these, yeah. So Hmm. we don't have to go to this removal.
0: Wow. Yeah. I didn't even know that. And you know, this that highlights you mentioned earlier in this chat, like how we lose if, if we are, you know, practicing cultural appropriation, we are losing too. It's not just the culture it comes from because we are losing the juice. Like we are not getting the nectar of the practice. We're actually limiting ourselves which is you know where sanskrit is also so potent and um you know and i also too am not proficient in it but it was i am naturally a talker and a communicator so it was one of my favorite things to learn when i started teaching Um, but you know i usually say to the uh teachers that i mentor you if you if you want to integrate it but you're worried about what your students think you know, in terms of postures, say the name in Sanskrit and the English translation, say chikanasana, Triangle Pose. So they get both. They're also learning, but you are also keeping that nectar of the practice and that integrity. Um, But you mentioned in the book as well, like, the intention and the impact, what is your intention it doesn 't have to be perfect Sanskrit mm-hmm. you don 't need to be a Sanskrit scholar, but have that pure intention to retain something that is easily accessible to you it 's easy to assimilate mentally. okay, this is just language, uh, and there is so much when we understand really Sanskrit itself i mean you you mention in your book that each sound has embedded within it the essence of the meaning of yoga itself you know it 's such a precise, specific language. There is nectar that we can just even share with our students in using the correct language. Mm -hmm. And then there's your intention and there's your impact. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be complex, which is so, I think this is so exciting and so wonderful. Um, And of course, you know, if you're not comfortable with chanting and things like that, that might be just a personal thing. That might be, you know, a, a confidence thing. But there are so many ways that we can, I guess, retain yeah the beauty of of the practice and you know i think indian culture and and art i mean i put yoga in the category of being an art you know as well Mm -hmm. like the arts of india um so in light of all of this uh i mean there's so many elements and aspects that you speak to in your work i think i would love to if you don't mind touch slightly on and you mentioned it already like glamorization and you know a bit of virtuous virtue signaling just because i think that that's so prominent in the western we really are not realizing it we're not seeing it and i think if we can understand what those concepts are and we can start to see them we can start to be a little bit more mindful with how we respond even to other businesses and what we put out in the world in terms of how we might teach or how we put things on social media would you mind if we can just dig briefly into that
1: Yes. Um, so sterilization is like kind of what we were talking about, like pulling out all the elements of a culture, um, but just taking the, the bare bones of the practice. And then, really, it, it is the essence of cultural appropriation. So, for example, taking some of the Pranayam, you know, um, equal breathing, you know, inhaling for retention, exhaling for retention. You know, like that, and and calling it box breathing, or calling it in in the military, they call in the United States, they call it tactical breathing, and recently in the scientific community, they called it um, cardiac coherence breathing.
0: Ah, yes. Okay, you mentioned that. Yeah, and you may have
1: seen this, um, but the problem is, it's it's not. It shouldn't take so much to just say, "Oh, well, this comes from you know the Upanishads, or this comes from early early Vedic practices." And if you want to learn more, you know, go check out a deeper yoga practice, right? It, it's like, but that doesn't happen. It's just the practice itself is stripped down and then rebranded essentially to be something completely new, and that's when um, you've really got sterilization at work now. Are there times where it's skillful means, right? For me, I live in Orlando, Florida in the South, if I'm teaching in a um, older folks home, where it's not so useful to to use Sanskrit, it's not going to be so useful, you know, there, um, I might just say, this is a practice that comes from, you know, early yogic practice from India. Um, It's, used in the scientific community it has these benefits, it lowers blood pressure, right? So I'm gonna talk about the benefits. I might even share a little story from my life and then I'm gonna teach it, right? So it doesn't mean you have to like shove culture down people's throats um, at all. But the antidote to sterilization is really just to do like a spiritual lineage acknowledgement, acknowledge where the practice comes from and then on the other side is glamorization and glamorization is where you know you, it's like you see someone like a western yoga teacher wearing a bindi has like five mala you know necklaces has all the clothes and you know it's just like always chanting or using and there you're like well wait okay you're you're just almost putting on an act of the culture but without consideration of you know the impact that this has, right? So so on the other side of sterilization is glamorization. Now this is tough because it's like, well, how can I authentically connect with a culture that isn't mine in a way that's respectful? And I, and I think it's by um, knowing and getting to know a culture from the inside out, by coming back to one's own intentions and values, like the values that you just naturally have in your life, And then many of those will probably line up with yogic values in the case of yoga. And then going back to practicing those. And so when it comes to virtue signaling, which really is like trying to show that we're more kind of woke or like aware Mm. to these issues, um, then we might be, or trying to do it just to look that way. Um, So an example would be, if a yoga studio wants to look like they're being more inclusive, putting a bunch of brown people on their marketing materials, but then none of the teachers that they have are brown, right? So that's harmful because there may be brown people in the community that see that and they're like, oh, I belong there, I'm welcome there. And then they show up and, oh, they're the only brown person. And maybe someone even like says a microaggression and you know, that makes them feel not welcome or makes them feel awkward. So instead of virtue signaling, instead of doing something just to look the right way, to actually be okay with like, hey, I might mess up. I'm not perfect at this, but I'm gonna try. And really in a case like that yoga studio, it would be to build relationships. So what indigenous yoga teachers might be in the community, what South Asian yoga teachers, what black yoga teachers, what brown yoga teachers, Can you develop a relationship with them? Maybe even not just inviting them to teach in the studio, but going to their community and kind of uplifting and supporting them. Mm -hmm. And then if you, for studios, I'm just thinking, you know, and groups, not just inviting in one person of color, like a handful, right? So then again, it's not just signaling, oh, we have our one black teacher, our one indigenous teacher, our one Indian teacher, but It's like a group of folks that then there's real ability for culture change. And then um, when someone shows up to that studio space, they're like, oh, wow, this is so rich, so diverse. There's so many different um, people here and and probably they will feel welcome in some way. Right. Like we we can't each serve everyone like I'm not the teacher for everyone, um, even though. I think I'm a wonderful teacher. I'm not going to speak to every person, right? And so like say the teacher trainings that I run, which now are all online, I've got a faculty of like six or seven other South Asian teachers. And then like six or seven other Black, you know, Latinx teachers, right? So it's it's intentional any and and like a handful of white teachers, right? Like intentional building a relationship so that students can see themselves if not in me in someone else that's there and feel seen and feel like their particular concerns or issues are going to be helped and understood and then we as a team do our best to actually hold those issues not just like have that person there you know say a trans teacher thing as a as a token um but have that person there and then really listen so when they say, hey, there's a lot of misgendering going on in your, in your yoga training, like, can you all as faculty address this? We really listen and then make those changes. I think that that goes a long way. It's really like community building and relationships.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think it dep- obviously there's a context for wherever you might live and who's in your community mm-hmm. because you don't want to be then tokenizing and just finding someone of color just to put there right but I love a couple there's a couple of really great suggestions in your book and one of them that stood out for me was like who who created the music that you're playing maybe whether it's during class or before or after class is that a person of color who wrote the yoga books that you're reading you know are they a person of color you know and I think that they're just really nice considerations and really gentle ways to start to take on board this you know this understanding and um you know, slowly make an impact, really. Uh, so what I would love to do, though, is I know that we've spoken a lot about your work and I could literally keep just highlighting mm. things and elements of your book because it's it's so rich, it's so important. But I would love to speak to you a little bit about you before we mm. wrap up. So um, and, and I, I guess this might be bounce around between you and your work and the community, but let's touch on tradition. How do you personally honour tradition and how can we honour tradition?
1: Mm, For me, a lot of how I honor tradition by by taking the time to slow down in my practice, like taking the time to connect. My particular tradition is uh, is of the lineage of goddess worship. And so my family lives not far from the Kamakya Temple in Assam, which is like one of the original Shakti goddess temples. And a lot of the practice is tantric practice. Now tantric in yoga doesn't mean sex in the West. We think tantric means sex, but really it just means like focused on the teachings of nature and, um, and embodiment and not just the, the not just the mind, but also embodied practice. And so Um, So paying attention to those types of of invitations through the day, and it's simple things, really. It's like taking time to connect to the ancestors, to look at my ancestors, to connect to the the elements like water and replenishing a water bowl that may be on the altar, or looking at the dew on the tree outside my window and, and just acknowledging the sacredness in that or the sunlight you know on on a branch or the butterflies that are flying by outside the window and really just paying attention to the moments and coming back to a practice that you know that only is in the moment it's like um at the yoga anushasana I'm the first sutras is in the yoga sutras right now is the yoga not anywhere else it's not in the future it's not a plan for how to practice it's not this morning or didn't do this morning you know it's it's right now like how can I practice right here and now so I do try to um or I just come back to that moment by moment being there with with the practice and that's a lot how I try to honor tradition and then also like listen to what my aunties and uncles say and you know do do be respectful to to my elders and to their requests
0: (laughs) I I appreciate your reference to Tantra as well because it's it gives that element of richness and ritual and sacredness to the every every day you know to that Mm -hmm. householder life and to all the little things that we do and it's how we weave uh yoga into that embodiment of just living and breathing yoga you know day by day. Yeah.
1: And as a mom, you know like let's be real, right? Like I don't have time the way I did for 30 day, you know, silent retreats or um or even an hour of yoga asana uninterrupted in the morning sometimes. And so my practice really has had to shift and become one of those of it's not doing yoga, it's being yoga. So how can I be yoga moment to moment to moment whether I'm with my child or you know, teaching a class or writing in my journal or, you know, resting or whatever, or gardening or shopping or whatever it is, you know, like getting food, making food, whatever I'm doing, how can I be an embody yoga in that?
0: Beautiful. A couple of random questions for you mm-hmm. though. What's your favorite sound? Mm. Oh, I will, I will do my favorite sound. Oh, great. <laughs> such a multi-layered resonance isn't it yeah this bell is
1: from Nepal and when I was in the Himalayas I got to spend some time with some monastics and some sannyasis who they they craft bells you know so this is like a hand a handmade bell and it's such a powerful practice, I think, of inviting the bell and coming back. As one of my teachers, who's not a yoga teacher, is meditation mindfulness teacher Tikhna Han, talks about listening to the sound of the bell and coming back to your true home. And so for me, that bell just always brings me back to my true home. And any be a bell of mindfulness, you know, a, a baby crying, a car horn, um, and only though from a lot of practice did I understand that for a long time other noise like those types
0: of noises a lot of people have brought up bells in previous interviews on the podcast it seems to be a running theme and it it is and bells always remind me of being in India just the early morning bells of the temples and it's just oh just it's like the sound is so deeply embedded on a cellular level it just impacts me it's like certain aromas the smell of certain things and then that that resonance of the bell it's just magnificent yeah
1: or um, the, the sacred sound of the universe. Uh, yeah.
0: And now what is your favorite place? It could be geographical or not, however you want to interpret that.
1: Mm, I love that question. What's coming up maybe because I was just talking about the Himalayas is in the foothills gosh, there's so many places. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so many favorite places. But in, in India, I would say being in India in general is one of my favorite places. And um, any place where there's deep practice, like deep spiritual practice going on. So that could be at an altar, at a puja, uh, at home here or um, or there. But I'm just thinking of a, a particular village that I was in, on this like totally random, very non-populated dirt road, dirt path. Really, it wasn't even a road you could drive on. And there was a, a beautiful immaculate uh, altar that I walked by that um, had flowers and had a white marble statue. And just seeing that devotion that someone, and care that someone had taken to Um, to build this altar in the middle of nowhere and obviously tended to, maybe went back and cared for every week. Um, That for me, that kind of care and culture of care is, is pretty profound.
0: There is so much magic in India, too, just around any corner. You know, the the, the beauty. Oh, anyway, it's just we we lack it so much in the West. And I have said this before on other podcast episodes. But, you know, and, and actually it crossed my mind earlier as you were speaking. You know, I, of course, it's not a prerequisite to travel to India to be an effective and wonderful yoga teacher yeah. by any means. You know, even yeah. reading your book can, can really... Um, open the mind to bringing more integrity and honor to the tradition but definitely you know going to India for me has made a profound impact on how I translate and share and going from you know I remember when Instagram was brand new and I was teaching yoga and it was like this big thing and getting on there and it was so commercialized and then traveling to India it was just like this doesn't sit well with me anymore this just doesn't Mm -hmm. sit well. So, all right, let's wrap up with a couple more questions. Uh, what is your absolute favorite go-to meal or food? Well,
1: I live in the U.S. And it, what's easy for me is uh, is burritos. Burritos are tacos. That's what I've kind of grown up with here. So just cooking up some black beans. Um, or if I was going to do uh, like a family alternative, it would be lentils and chapati.
0: <laughs> yum, yum, yum. Great. And what are you curious about in life right now?
1: You know i'm really interested in the other aspects of the chakras like the chakra system and i've learned some different systems i've overlaid it with western psychology um, and learned that you know kind of the the chakra system but i know there's much more to it and i've studied it a little bit but i'd like to go deeper so that's where um, my focus is right now as well as some of the other Um, yoga goddesses and and gods and kind of deities and continuing to from from
0: new and less less common sources so nice okay and so if people want to dig deeper into this can you share with the listener what you've got coming up maybe talk about your book or Anything you've got happening? I know a lot of stuff has moved online for you. What have you got coming up in the pipeline?
1: Yeah. Um, So probably the easiest way to connect if people want to go deeper is I have a free masterclass called the Namaste Masterclass that asks some questions and does some teaching around Namaste and folks can can learn there and I have a blog about it. And then I do have a 200-hour yoga teacher training and a 300 hour yoga teacher training all online in 2021. Um, It's worked really well. I wasn't sure if yoga training would translate to online, but when you're teaching the full expanse of what you um, it, it works wonderfully. So, um, so I'm excited about those. And then the book right now, folks can get a free chapter. There's a chapter, you know, when I thought about this work, I wanted, you know, to give away in that free chapter the heart of what I felt would be most valuable. And there's a chapter on trauma-informed yoga and trauma and yoga in general. And and the roots of the practice and how they can help us like recalibrate our nervous systems and so the chapter really goes into om the sacred sound and how it's been there as a tool for reharmonizing and rebalancing so folks can get that and if they would like you know read it practice with what the practices shared in in that chapter it's at embraceyogasrootsbook.com or on um, my website Susanna Barkataki. Um, on the book tab so either way um and then you can get a free chapter there
0: and of course you have your book launching next month
1: yes and then the book will be launching so it'll be amazing if folks want to buy it and read it and you know have discussion groups and share it in yoga community it's the kind of book that really is you know i am i'm a shy person at heart but I do have some fire, and so it's a book <laughs> with like loving, compassionate fire. Meaning, it'll get you thinking, it'll stir up emotions, and hopefully provoke conversations. And so, it is the kind of book that I see as a workbook and a book to be highlighted and like dog-eared and, you know, maybe thrown across the room and then picked back up and um, just like engaged with. So, yes, so it'd be great if folks do want to buy it and and share it and you know
0: explore it and obviously the listener can't see you right now but you've got a copy right in your hands and you literally just unpacked them today which is incredibly exciting mm. it looks so beautiful and so yes i will plug everyone into you know your links and and direct everyone in, in the show notes and whatnot to how they can access that are you do you know where it will be available to purchase
1: i believe at first because this is just the way the world works it'll be on amazon <laughs> so after that um after that i'll have it in smaller booksellers Mm -hmm. but because i had to self-publish just all the things that go into that it it's just going on one place at first it will be amazon
0: but at least it's globally accessible in that light so okay fantastic yeah that's so exciting i'm thrilled for you so congratulations
1: thank you thank you thank you for you know just like going in deep and reflecting on this and for the listeners, you know, and and the community that you all have. So appreciative.
0: Yeah. And look, for anyone listening, I do, from the heart, believe this book is so imperative for anyone that's new to yoga. So it's very easy to assimilate the terminology, the explanations. There's a great glossary in there. But for anyone that's been teaching for no matter how long, anyone that's a studio owner, anyone that does teacher trainings, it's such an imperative book. And I, I feel like, It could be such a great book to have as like a book club in a community of yoga teachers or yoga students or what have you, like that real open discussion forum, um, which can help us very much unpack just the conditioning that's happening, you know, within each of our own communities, which is so promising and so exciting in many ways. Hey, would would you like to share um, the best place people can find you on social media?
1: Sure. So I share a lot of provocative and, you know, questions and inspirations on Instagram. So at Susanna Barkataki on Instagram. And um, you can look up the spelling of my name or in the show notes.
0: Well, from the depths of my heart, thank you so very very much for your time today and for coordinating the different time zones again and i'm so grateful to have been able to dive into your book and your work and your wisdom and it's it's incredibly important i know i keep saying that but it really really is and it's an exciting conversation that we can have and so um yeah thank you if this episode was of value to you and your life please subscribe And if you can think of someone who would benefit from this dialogue, please do them a favour and send it their way. If you feel called, hop on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. This is the best way to get these conversations into the ears and hearts of our wider community, to those who need it most. You can find me at com or over on Instagram at amyelandry. May we all move a little closer to a life living in alignment.